I'm Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. Welcome back to Warming Signs and this week's episode, which I am so excited about. I've been so just ready to publish this one. So put some tape on your glasses, get out your pocket protectors, because this is a nerd alert. I recently got to geek out with a man who's living my best life. Dr. Matt Savoka is a marine biologist, and right now he's basically getting paid to observe whales, which is basically my dream. Baleen whales include the largest of the world's filter-feeding whale species, like right whales and humpbacks. But you can think of them kind of as a litmus test of the ocean. Their condition as a whole can tell us a lot about our oceans and how they're faring in our warming world. Matthew, I am so excited that we're going to talk about whales today. I have such an obsession with whales. My childhood bedroom, we had it sponge painted. My mom helped me sponge paint it to look like the ocean. And every wall, I had whale posters all over it. But you're like kind of even more excited about whales right now. Can you tell us what you're working on? Yeah, so... I mean, like you, I grew up loving uh, awesome animals of any kind, and there's few animals in the world that are more awesome than uh, whales. And in particular, the whales that really excite me are the super large ones. So those are the baleen whales, whales that instead of teeth have these baleen uh, plates in their mouth that they use to strain the water, right? And so instead of picking out individual pieces of food to eat, like a dolphin or a killer whale would, Uh, These whales take huge gulps of schools of prey, whether it be a large amount of krill, these tiny shrimp in the ocean, or thousands and thousands of fish in a single mouthful. And then they filter out the water and swallow all that prey. And so right now, we're undergoing this sort of technological revolution as to uh, how we are able to understand the secret lives of these whales under the waves. So when you go out on a whale watching boat, as you may have done when you were younger or recently. I, don't I did know, that but this year. Yep. yep Not going to yep. lie. <laughs> no, I try and a, do that as often as possible. It's a huge business, a multi-billion dollar business whale watching. But the thing that's interesting is, of course, we can only see a tiny fraction of their lives um, above the surface of the water. The vast majority of what they do is underwater. And until very recently, almost all of that was hidden from us. But now what we're able to do is we're able to use advanced technology that's only really been uh, available to us within the last five or 10 years or so to open up the entire world of these whales' lives to us. So we put tags on their backs that record their movements and their behaviors underwater, and we're learning incredible things every day, things that we never knew about these animals just by putting, uh, I call them whale iPhones, but basically the... (laughs) The lab that I work in, they put these amazing tags attached by suction cups. So not even, you know, it doesn't even harm them at all. They're just attached by suction cups. And they already have like barnacles all over them. Yep. 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 And I don't know if you've ever touched a whale. And this is a weird tangent. No, but but that sounds really exciting. (laughs) So if you touch a whale, what it feels like is... um, Kind of like if you ever touched like a rubber boat, they're called Zodiacs, these little rubber inflatable boats. Um, and it sort of feels like a cold, wet Zodiac, like a, like hard, like rubber. But the point is, is that it's a great surface for attaching suction cups to. And so we attach these tags via suction cups. 
And what's really cool about these tags is just like our iPhones, you know, how you can go onto your iPhone and see how many steps you took today or how many flights of stairs you climbed, things like this. Well, our iPhones do that with special sensors inside them known as accelerometers and uh, also magnetometers, which, for example, is how your GPS works. It tells you where you're going. But the tags that we put on the whales have the very same sensors. And of course, we're not interested in how many steps they take, though it would be amazing if a whale took a step, right? right. Um, <laughs> but we're, we're interested in things like how many times do they take a big gulp of water? How many times do they move their tail up and down? How many times do they breach out of the water? Um, things like this. Uh, how do they move? How do they direct their movements in the ocean? How do they uh, decide where to go? How do they know where food is? Uh, these basic questions that we know about for many other animals, we really didn't know anything about for whales until very, very recently. And, and a lot of this stuff is not even published yet. So technically, we don't really know about it yet, but um, we're starting to learn some really cool stuff. Where are you right now? I am based in Monterey, California, and Monterey, California is an amazing place for marine wildlife and specifically whales. It hosts some of the densest concentrations of large whales anywhere in the world during the late summer months. Um, That's so where I went whale watching. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Well, well, recently, I went on an accidental whale watching tour in uh, Kauai a couple okay. years ago. <laughs> was not hey. meant to be. But it turned out to be an incredible whale watching tour in 20-foot seas. But that is a story for another time. That sounds more like a roller coaster than a whale It was terrible. Everybody was sick. It was gross. Um, So I I love hearing your excitement about all the research with this. But, I, I mean, I assume that you guys are kind of using these animals as a litmus test um, based on what you've told me here is that they are giving us almost like a diagnosis on the ocean. Is that how you would characterize it? Yeah, I think that's a very apt characterization of what we're trying to do. So as I described earlier, uh, what these, the way these whales make their living, they're so massive and they have to eat so much and they have to filter so much of the ocean water to just remain alive and make their living sort of thing. To do this, uh, they're collecting data for us. And so we scientists think, hey, you know, it's really expensive to go out there and collect data to put instruments all over the oceans and take measurements. But these whales are basically taking measurements of the ocean for us. Basically, imagine if you have pollution floating in the water, or if you have uh, different types of prey in different areas, for example. These are types of information that are really important as a scientific community. We really want to know you know, the state of the health of the ocean. And we think there's no better animals to do this than the large baleen whales, simply because of the way they make their living. And in places like Monterey, where I'm based, we have the opportunity to go out into the ocean, not very far from shore, as it turns out, and see and sample and put tags on bunches of whales to ask them how healthy are our oceans. Well, you wouldn't be asking that question if, you know, our our oceans are perfectly perfectly healthy and doing great and we had no pollution or anything. So, I mean, in a general sense, what is the state of our oceans? In a general sense, um it varies, but it's under threat. I think that's the that would be the general consensus. And 
What's kind of interesting about the current biodiversity crisis that we're undergoing on our planet today is you can look at, for example, um, known extinction rates of animals on land and animals at sea. And what's fascinating when you do this is that we have been undergoing a mass extinction on land for several centuries at least now. And I'm going to plug that we have another podcast on that exact topic. If you it, guys want to yeah. go check it out in some of the earlier podcasts of Warming Signs. So uh, go and check that out because that does exist. So uh, people are suggesting the sixth great extinction because of yes. the extinction rates. And that's kind of what you were saying is happening on land. So yes, we're pretty, we're very confident, in fact, that we're in another uh, area, another uh, epoch, another time, geological time period of mass extinction on this planet uh, that is primarily caused and uh, particularly exacerbated by human activity, right? But what's interesting is that the oceans do primarily, we believe, to how remote they are. And of course, we're land creatures, so we haven't been able to, you know, permeate the marine environment as well as we have the land environment. Um, what we're seeing is a slower um, biodiversity crisis happening at sea. So the point of this that I'm trying to make is we have a real opportunity here as not just Americans, but as a species, as a human species, to uh, identify what's going on in the oceans and halt the biodiversity crisis ideally long before it gets as bad as it's gotten many places on land. And that's what we're trying to do as a scientific community. And to do that, we need to collect data on the state of the health of the ocean. And of course, the thing is, our activities now, so you know, 500 years ago, um, our populations were human populations, were small enough that we didn't really affect the entire planet as easily, as quickly, and as intensely as we do now in the age of, in of industrialization and globalization. And of course, uh, when we now add pollution to the environment, it goes everywhere, which might not have been the case three, four hundred years ago, because we simply didn't have the technology or the ability to do so. But we're finding pollutants that we emit in Europe or North America, we're finding those pollutants in the Southern Ocean, you know, and near Antarctica, right? So it's a global system and our species, unfortunately, is able to affect the entire planet. So our activities here in the United States, for example, we can see ripples of those activities in extremely remote marine ecosystems. And that's what we're trying to monitor. Wow. Like you don't think whenever you're having, you know, a bottle of Coke, I say Coke because... We're based in Atlanta. It's a Coke yeah, town. Yeah, right. I get it. <laughs> it's the South. Um, but you have, you know, a bottle of that, a plastic bottle, and the ripple effect of that ends up on the other side of the earth. Yes. Is yes. what you're suggesting. Now, yes. what is a bigger threat? I mean, are, is it the plastics? Is it the warming of the ocean? I mean, what is the, the greatest pressing issue for our oceans? That's a really, really important question, and uh, it's a tough one to answer. I bet if you ask five different scientists, you might get five different answers. But um, you know, I study marine pollution, and I think, of course, that's an issue. Um, I think what's exciting about studying pollution is that we have, uh, for a lot of types of pollution, let's say plastic, we have a way to address it. We can just you know, produce less plastic, uh, recycle more plastic, things like this. There are measures, obvious measures, relatively speaking, easy measures to take to address the plastic pollution problem. And for that reason, 
to answer your question, I would say the greatest threat facing our oceans is uh, climate change and the uh, basically the downstream effects of that climate change on our oceans. So that means not just the changing temperature of our oceans, but also things like ocean acidification, where um, our pollution that goes into the atmosphere, some of that CO2 is absorbed into the ocean and turns into a special type of acid. And it's not that the seas are going to turn acidic on us, but what happens is the organisms that produce shells at sea, like, uh, and these are really important animals at the base of the food web that support all these uh, fisheries and all the oceans that we know of, they produce these calcium carbonate shells. And when we put CO2 into the atmosphere and some of that CO2 goes into the ocean, the animals that form shells are unable to capture the calcium carbonate they need to produce their shells. And that is a result, it's sort of a downstream result of the large emission of CO2 into our atmosphere. So we're seeing effects of climate change on, of course, the obvious thing, which is ocean temperature, but also things like uh, like ocean acidification, threatening organisms at the bottom of the food web that form shells. So this is a, this is a problem and it's, it's a way more diffuse problem than pollution. I mean, how do we solve the, the, the global climate problem that we're exacerbating? And, uh, you know, are we causing the global climate problem? I mean, the, the globe goes through major swings of climate every, you know, 10,000 years or so. So, but what we are doing is we're exacerbating it and we're changing the climate at a rate, at an unprecedented rate. So basically, a lot of detractions or things that I've heard about, oh, well, climate change is a natural thing, or, or we don't know, you know, that humans are really th this big of a problem. What we do know for sure is that we are changing, we humans are changing the rate of the change of climate is really, it's really more about the rate of the change of the climate. And that's something that we're doing. And that rate of change threatens the globe and threatens marine ecosystems because the way that the world has evolved is to respond on very long timescales. We're talking about tens of thousands to millions of year timescales. So these are very, very, very long oscillations. And we've changed the climate in a way that in the geologic past, you might expect it to change in 100,000 or a million years. We've, we've really accelerated that change from, let's say, 100,000 years to 100 years. That's a huge difference. And that's what the earth is having trouble coping with. Yeah, I think that's a that's an excellent, just beautiful way of describing that. You put it into words better than I ever could. So thank you. <laughs> All right, let's stop for just a second here for one of our recurring segments, warming signs, because they are literally everywhere and we are literally always losing another chunk of ice sheet or another animal is going extinct. But today it's on theme, oceans. The numbers came in last week and October to December of 2018 saw the warmest oceans for that period on record. And you may not think that it's that big of a deal. I mean, heck, we hit a new record high every day on this planet. But oceans absorb more than 90% of the heat that's in Earth's planetary system. And as the water warms, it expands. Translation, sea level rise. 
So don't let those fools on YouTube fool you into thinking that icebergs melting is a good thing because your water in your glass goes down when your ice melts. When water warms, it expands. And not only that, it changes the entire ocean system, changing the way our currents flow and how our sea life lives and breathes. This latest update on heat comes from NASA, and it rounds out our ocean heat data for 2018. And it ain't good. The Atlantic Basin finished in first place for the warmest year since record-keeping began. Globally, our oceans had their fourth warmest year. And we weren't even in an El Nino, which means warmer waters along the equator in the Pacific. So not great news for our oceans. But let's get back to Dr. Matthew Savoca because he does have some positivity for us. So these whales that you've been researching, what has been the biggest discovery thus far? Yeah. So uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're in a revolution. We're in a data revolution in the well, really in all of science, but uh, in marine science in particular, we're starting to uh, use technology to unlock the species that all that the secrets rather that all these marine species have, and it's a very very exciting time. So, you know, for example, one of the things we've learned recently is by placing these special tags on the backs of whales, um, we are able to see, for example, how whale behavior and foraging and ultimately survival is impacted by noise in the ocean, right? So noise is a big problem in our, in our ocean for marine wildlife, and many people may not know about this problem, but all these container ships, uh, sonar testing, oil exploration, um, this is a lot of additional noise that as recently as 100 or 200 years ago in the ocean never existed. Now, what's interesting is that whales are very, very sensitive to uh, noise disturbances, right? Because as you may know, uh, the whales that have teeth, these are things like killer whales or dolphins, they use sound to forage, to find food. They use echolocation, sort of like bats do, to find food. And so if we're adding sound to the ocean, it can be very, very difficult for these animals to communicate with each other and find food. For the larger whales, the large baleen whales, they communicate with each other and uh, they might, they may also find food with sound, though that's, yes, that question is still out. Uh, the jury's still out on that one. But the point is that the large baleen whales and the small toothed whales are very sensitive to additional noise in the ocean. And so one of the things that our tags, um, that the tags for the people that I work with are helping show is how these whales' behavior and feeding and ultimately, inevitably, their survival could be impacted by the additional noise that we're adding to the ocean. So that's one of the things that I think is most exciting that we're doing right now. Another really cool uh, study that just came out a couple years ago was basically looking at uh, where ships are moving in the ocean. So this might be uh, of, of general interest, but did you know that all ships, I think it's over 65 feet, but basically all large ships have uh, GPS trackers on them and are now being tracked all over the globe. And this data is available for researchers to see basically the global footprint of container ship traffic, of fisheries all over the world. And so one of the things that um, that was done quite recently was to say, okay, in the future, or even at, at present, we can predict where whales are going to be in the ocean and where shipping traffic is the highest. And as a result, we can predict where whales are most likely to get hit by ships, actually, at sea. Oh, wow. And and this happens for the big whales. So 
think about like a, whether it's a large airplane or an aircraft carrier, large, uh, large objects have trouble uh, maneuvering super quickly. So if you're a huge blue whale or a huge humpback whale, you have trouble getting out of the way of a big ship. And so a lot of these whales actually get hit by container ships. And for That's awful. Yeah. I had no yeah, idea. Yeah. Right, right. And for some species, it actually threatens their entire uh, species survival. So the North Atlantic right whale, which you have on you know the East Coast up there, particularly in the Northeast near Boston and the Gulf of Maine, um, one of the main threats to North Atlantic right whales is getting hit and killed by large container ships uh, going in and out of Boston, New York, and other harbors there. So uh, we need to know basically when the whales are there and where the ships are so that we can try and avoid uh, interactions between large whales and large container ships. And the new data revolution we're undergoing in the marine science world is allowing us to start to do this. And hopefully, as a result, we can protect these amazing creatures in the future. Wow. Yeah, that kind of is a, a, a that would be wonderful to be able to protect them. Would you say that that is what gives you hope in the research that you're doing and seeing? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think when you're around um, a bunch of inspiring, ambitious people um, researching the problems, uh, you know, the issues rather that we have with our marine environment nowadays, um, the thing that gives me hope is exactly what you just said. There are so many uh, amazing um, and talented people working to address the issues that we have that I feel very, very confident that we're going to be able to mitigate many of these issues in the future. That doesn't mean we need to stop working. That means that we need to redouble our efforts and continue to work as hard, if not harder, um, and continue to value the science that we're producing that um, will hopefully conserve our oceans and uh, these oceans sustain us all. So it, it's of great importance to everyone. But I think uh, the, the people that I've been able to work with have really inspired me to, to show that we're making great progress and we'll only continue to make more progress in the future because not just of the technologies that are coming out, but because of the people harnessing the power of this data and this technology for good and to help uh, conserve the world's biodiversity and uh, ecosystems. Man, I feel like I can go tackle the day now. That's so encouraging. That's such a positive <laughs> way to, you know, kind of close out this conversation. And I can't yeah. thank you enough for um, all of the insight and just, it's a beautiful thing. A huge thank you to Dr. Matthew Savoka for geeking out with me on one of my favorite topics of all time. If I could just be out looking at whales at all time, that would be my best life. Instead, next best thing, talking about them with the experts. So join the conversation. Tweet at me at WeatherKate. Hit me up on the Facebooks, but I also don't check those a whole lot. So maybe try me on Instagram. Also at WeatherKate, K-A-I-T. Huge thank you to our awesome team, Mia Bichak, Dan Wright, Jim Robinson, and Eric Zirkel for getting this podcast out of my brain and into yours every week. Until next Tuesday.